Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 161, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Here we go. Schools are starting to open. Can districts pull this off? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we speak to a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, why it's crucial for students to see themselves in a book. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is August the 2nd, 2020, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing with the uh, reopening of schools? This is crazy. Well, I'm actually feeling really good right now, which is surprising because it's been where I've tried to be as positive as possible, but maintaining my stress and my anxiety. Our school district recently voted to push back the opening of school um, by two weeks, which gives me a little breathing room to try to make sure I have everything ready for staff development for teachers, for planning for teachers so that they can feel a little less anxiety and stress. So I, I'm better today. Yeah, that is that is definitely a huge um, relief, I'm sure, to have that pushback. I know our kids' school district did the same thing, but they only pushed back like a week. And then there was, I'll say this, and I'll take the heat for this. Like, I was kind of surprised. I think the superintendent sent out a message for for our children's school district and said, hey, we're going to um, recommend the hybrid model to the yeah. school board. And yeah. the school board as came well back and said- As well as a two-week delay. Right. As well as that. And the school board came back and was like, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to just continue with the original plan, but we'll switch the hybrid if needed later. Politics. Yes. Politics. Yes. Politics. It's, it's been interesting. So I have this question. I know when we had to go into lockdown and quickly switch to distance learning in March, I mean, schools had no time to prepare. I mean, the the, the task was really a ridiculous request and they did as Let's say good as they could do. Some schools didn't have time to prepare. Right. The school district or that, let's be specific, the school where our children attend was prepared in a sense because they had enough technology Mm -hmm. and the children had access to technology and internet to quickly switch and make the best of it. Where I served as principal was a completely different case, whereas my teachers could quickly get together and collaborate and get something figured out because teachers are superheroes. Our students did not have access. And we were one-to-one with our um, Chromebooks for students, but only about 75 of them came and picked one up because it didn't serve any purpose when you don't have internet. Right. I was going to say, just because you have a Chromebook doesn't mean you have connectivity. And and you actually actually just brought up the question I have written out here for you, which I was going to say, you know, while some districts had that, others had to focus on food security, which you guys did Mm -hmm. excellently, and then internet connectivity. It was those two things. And that, that was really kind of like, you know, it was... It was the basis of what you need before you can start So putting hotspots in places, figuring out a meal delivery. But let's also be very clear. My district had reserve funds to jump and do some things instead of waiting on the CARES Act money. The current district that I'm in, that's a different situation. They did. We, let me get that correct. um, 
don't have the same cushion as some other districts had in place. And the school I served in, now I'm serving in a district that meets the same different demographics, not just the school, because I was not serving in a high poverty um, district. The school I was serving was in that situation. Right. Now I'm in a school district where the entire new school district is is um, high poverty. They don't have access to the internet. They don't have the devices within the buildings either. So having foundational money or cushion money, should I say, is also... Um, not at our fingertips. So we're in a different situation right now than even the school district I used to serve in, but even the school district our children attend. Well, and so I guess that's where my question is, is, I mean, being in this district that you're in where you have these challenges, have you had enough time to be able to check the box of food security, check the box of internet connectivity for these kids that are going to be distance learning and now be able to focus on more like lesson plans and, and how this is going to work? Have you had enough time? I will say yes, because when it comes to child nutrition, we're going to make it happen. And as long as you follow follow um, the U.S. Department of Education's recommendations and guidelines for child nutrition, we make it happen. So our restart and recovery plan included every director from all of the departments. So child nutrition worked closely with us to help us figure out how we're going to provide grab and go breakfasts for everyone. And then how we're going to do, um, we're going to stick to hot lunches. We're not going to force our kids to eat sandwiches every day. So we're going to continue to provide hot meals. But ha- what is that going to look like in your building? We're not using our cafeterias. We have checkpoints set up where um, ho- classes will come as a group to pick up their lunch. They're going to now have to eat lunch in the classroom. So you won't see your buddy from down the hall per se, but it's a safer situation. Now, in regard to the technology aspect, we are in the process of adding some hotspots to our parking lots. Hasn't happened yet because our district has been focusing on strengthening the infrastructure. Our own network needed some some t- fine tuning in order for so many more people to be on Canvas and all these different learning management systems and using Zoom. So we've been scurrying, let me just say, and districts all across this country are in the same situation. Those districts who are better off with stronger infrastructure, one-to-one connections, they're in a better um place to just say, we're going virtual and we're going virtual this whole fall because we know how we're going to make this work. And they've identified the few children that they have who have those internet connectivity issues because of where they live, not necessarily because of finances. We also have to consider um, where the signal struggles and what you can do to boost that. I've got a little bit of a teaser. I've got a guest um, coming up in a future episode, one or two episodes out, and he's actually a school designer. Um, and he's got a new book out, but I really want to kind of quiz him a little bit. And I don't know if I'm overthinking this, but is school design going to change? And I know we may have a solution for COVID-19 in a year and it may not be necessary, but I just wonder like if you were designing a school today, thinking in the the world of a pandemic, I mean, would you try to prevent fewer bottlenecks? Would you uh, maybe change the way the air conditioning system works in the school? Would it be more um compartmentalized. Um, so I, I'm just really kind of curious to pick his brain and see if that's a thought on his you'll, mind. You'll laugh at my approach to responding to you. Uh, there's a gif out there with Taylor Swift and she's jumping up and down. She's got her fist pumping and she's just 
excited. And so my response to that is absolutely. And I can't wait to hear the specific details that will be shared to help us kind of imagine or envision. But I will tell you one of the my most favorite questions asked in a principal interview, um, and I've been in, in at least four principal interviews in my career. And one of those questions is, what does your school look like in the future? What does your school look like in five or 10 years? Mm-hmm. And you always have to include Things like that, the building structure, what, you know, how would you design it differently to meet the needs of the kids? And you've got to be a forward thinker to do that. And one of the things we've already had to do is completely change our traffic pattern in order to accommodate the number of children coming in and the number of people whose temperatures, everybody's temperature has to be taken. So, for example, our bus is pulled into the front of the building. Um, There's a foyer and they would go through the four double doors to get into the building. Well, we've had to switch that. And we're now using the back parking lot um, because there's a larger courtyard and a larger entryway, which we used to use only for teachers that we're now going to use for students because it'll be safer to spread them out and keep them social distance in order to take temperature. So that's just an example of innovation that we've had to to change and, of course, changing how you feed students. But I'm really looking forward to hearing the recommendations on um, just the entire layout of how you design new buildings because in our state about 10 to 15 years ago, not sure if you know this, Biloxi High School was one of the most innovative designs we'd seen in a long time for high schools. How they changed the layout of high schools and some other high schools started to fall behind them. You know, as you're taking lockers out, as you're getting away from pods, as you're um, including 1,500 to 2,000 kids or more in a building, just things of that nature for Mm -hmm. safety purposes. Even after um, many of the school shootings, designs of schools began to change. Yeah, no doubt. And then, you know, you always hear about like in places in California, they probably have much more of an option to have class outdoors um, Mm -hmm. as we go into the fall semester here. But, you know, a place like Mississippi, it's it's blazing hot until mid-October around here. Or if you're in New York in the wintertime, the outdoor model doesn't work too well because you're probably dealing with um, snowstorms come December and January. So I I just kind of... Well, you have to think about instruction without walls. Orange County School District in Florida, which I visited um, many years ago, they were already innovating with the design of classrooms where their walls would um, slide back and there would be four classrooms in a pod and they could come together as a team of teachers and students or they could slide those walls back together. They didn't have desk, um, their seating arrangement to accommodate attention deficits. So there's just a lot of ideas out there already that were trying to meet the needs of students. But now this is just a whole new ballgame. It really is. And it kind of conflicts with other things. Like you said, school safety in some ways, what you might, what might be safe in the world of COVID-19 may not be safe in the mm-hmm. simultaneous world that we live in of school shootings. And um, yeah. so, and so really just crosses into policy. Exactly. <laughs> so there's so much to think about. Um, and I'm really curious to pick his brain in a future episode. Um, we've got to talk about what happened over in, um, I think it was Indiana's. They had, it looks like it was the first state to reopen its schools. Mm-hmm. And just days after those schools reopened their doors, um, um, this is since March. They actually had a student and staffer test positive for coronavirus. I mean, yeah. and, and I think I've heard other stories that are similar to this around the country. Uh, how much tolerance do you think? Like, are we just going to see this happen everywhere? And we're going to read all these news stories and everyone's just going to seal back up real quickly? What's your prediction there? My prediction is that that is what's going to happen. Um, 
You've got to keep safety in mind. You also have to, you know, kind of remain positive and proactive and think things through and not create panic or fear, but you have to be realistic. I mean, we have a school district, our first school district in the state of Mississippi, who um, already completed a week of school. Within that first week of school, they identified five students that tested positive for COVID, and then they had to do contact tracing. And any child or any adult that was within six feet of a positive um, student for at least 15 minutes or more had to be notified and then quarantined for 14 days. And I I really would love to know that number, just how many students and just how many teachers or staff members um, were connected in this contact tracing and, and being required to stay home. And then what did they do to replace those teachers? Obviously, you quickly revert to virtual learning for the children. But what do you do for the adults? What do you do for the other children who may not have been in a child's presence for 15 minutes, but you coughed in that direction, right. <laughs> you know? So I, it's just, it, there's a lot of layers to it. And I think that's overall the greatest concern for teachers across our country. They want to do what's best for kids. They want to come back and teach. They want to develop their classrooms and make them um, student rich and print rich and get ready for great learning. Um, but they're concerned about the protocol. And I just think it takes for it to happen, for it to be real, for you to make sure you follow your recover and restart plan, but then have the wherewithal to make adjustments and as needed. And at a certain point, if you need to go 100% virtual and bring in a professional company to disinfect your building. I think that's one of my concerns as a principal is human error. We have custodial staff, and let me just say they are the other superheroes in the building. They work so hard, but none of us have ever been fully trained and we don't have experience with cleaning schools in a pandemic. No, of course not. And I, I can't help but wonder what type of support, and, and time will tell, the state and the federal government will have as these outbreaks pop up. So let's just say there's 10 outbreaks simultaneously in the state of Mississippi at schools. Do they have the resources to test people and contact trace? And, and contact tracing, it could be as much as a person working the phones and trying to figure this out. Um, I need to get Russ Davis, uh, our CEO of school status and our sponsor on the show. Cause I know like they built a button where yes. apparently like if a student has coronavirus, you can hit that button and it'll build, I think an Excel sheet of some type. And I, I might be off on this a little bit, but it'll build an Excel sheet basically saying these are the kids who are in class with this student. Now it doesn't know everywhere that student's been. It can't do that, but it does know their schedule mm -hmm. and it can quickly build you a list. If a district yeah. chooses to use that list. It's an awesome tool, but let me also say that part of your recovery and restart plan, you should have protocol in place on contact tracing also for, for your adults. So let me give you an example. Um, if you have, say, your front office secretary who either was exposed to someone that uh, tested positive for COVID or they've already tested positive for COVID, then that immediately must be reported to, let's say, your personnel director. And then the personnel director uh, then has to communicate with the principal and identify everyone that that employee has been in contact with, what locations that they visited within the building. Of course, there's, there's some deep discussions that go on and then notification to all of those people that you may have been, not that you have, but you may have been exposed to someone either that tested positive for COVID or that was exposed to COVID. So communication is going to be really key um, with reopening schools and then waiting a few days to get those results back. If you get rapid testing, that's even better. 
but wanting someone to test twice. I'll give you an example. If you test today because you found out today that you may have been exposed to it a few days ago, well, I'm in, I'm under the inclination you need to test again in about three days. <laughs> yeah. You know, get two negative results um, before reporting back to work in order to make sure, you know, just that, that, that we're that we're operating in a safe manner. So every district has a different plan. I have to say verbally that that's one thing that I think I disagree with within, within our state. The governor and the state department is asking for every school district to submit their restart and recovery plans, which were due Friday, July 31st, by the way. But they're all coming from different angles. And I just think this is just me. I'm just a building level principal. But I really think that we should have had a recovery and restart plan template that required specific mm-hmm. things from every school district so that we're, we're, we're kind of following the same guidelines and then just differentiating based on our areas. Yeah, that's kind of been my gripe is that I've watched a lot of politicians say we have to get schools reopened, but I don't see them with no guidance. I don't see them backing <laughs> up what they're saying. Yeah. Okay, great. Help us. Um, so that's kind of been my gripe. Now I'm going to share a personal story just because this is um, crucial to how we move forward. And and that's just I had to get a COVID test because late last week, I was just really with my family and my immediate mm-hmm. family, it was three of us. And my little girl kind of had a stopped up nose. And then I came down with pretty rough cold system, uh, cold mm-hmm. symptoms. I was, you know, sneezing, coughing, but everything was wet. It wasn't like really a dry cough, but I still got nervous. And my stomach kind of got messed up, which is probably TMI. But I was like, that's another symptom. Well, turns <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah. So so it turns out I, I was like, I'm going to go get a test. And so this was a Saturday that I decided to get the test. I logged on to my local clinic and um, I How was able to... How long did you wait in line? Well, so it was all pretty smooth. I was able to get my appointment the following day at noon, Okay, drove up in my car. They walked out in minutes. Like, I mean, it was shorter than I'd wait at any other doctor's Okay, so you had an appointment. I had an appointment, yeah. So I pulled up. They swabbed me. It was the newer swabs where they don't jam it into your brain. It's a shorter swab, and they were excited about that. And so was I. Yeah. So I did that, and then um, they told me I'd have results in three to five days, and I got them in three days. So it was all it was not the rapid testing. It was not rapid testing. It was the the more traditional, but it was all a pretty smooth process, I will say. And that was about as smooth as I, I could imagine it being right now. However, it's still not enough. And here's why. I had symptoms Wednesday through or Tuesday through Friday. I finally decided to get tested on Saturday. I couldn't actually go to get tested till Sunday. So there you already have five days where I could have been That's exposing right. people. Fortunately, and I wasn't. And the most dangerous time you realize is within the first six, de- six days is what I've read. Right. And then I had to wait another three days for the test, which isn't that bad, but still it's not enough because now I'm at like eight or nine days of, of having mm-hmm. this thing before I got my results, which were negative, by the way. Um, so it's just like even in the best case you can't scenario. Get a common cold without panicking now. Right. And so it just imagine if that was, if I was a teacher, that was that would have been pretty much eight or nine days, I had to be out of school to find out I had a negative result. And then everyone who maybe was around me during those eight or nine days may also not be able to go to school, it's just going to be really messy. And so in, until it is all rapid testing, I just feel like we are in a really tough spot here. Yeah. I agree. Um, so anyhow, we, we are going to see, uh, no doubt. I'm very excited for you and your district for pushing back a few weeks. Um, you know, I mean, w- yeah, I'm really proud of our district leaders and our school board. Um, I yeah. really, really am. It, it, you have no idea how the air came out of the bag 
for so many teachers messaging me or emailing me and telling me, like, I don't know if you had anything to do with this, but thank you. And I said, well, it was a collective effort that we talked about it, made the recommendations, and then the superintendent obviously presents to the school board. But I have to tell you that I have so many teachers to just say, you know, just a sigh of relief so they can get themselves together. Yes, no doubt. And in that time, I mean, no one wants to be the guinea pig. And unfortunately, yeah. somebody is. And, and in this case, we're watching Indiana. And as we see... You have a lot of school districts starting next week and then mm-hmm. again on the 10th. Right. So we we will see what happens and we will bring it to you here on the Class Dismissed podcast. Christina, thank you so much for your time today. Are you ready for the bread idea? Oh, yes. I can't wait. Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment is an associate professor of English education at St. Louis University. Jennifer Bueller is also the author of Teaching Reading with YA Literature, Complex Text, Complex Lives. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm very excited to have you because I was recently reading an article published by the National School Boards Association where you had a quote that really grabbed my attention. And what you said was, quote, what does it mean if you never see yourself in a story it's dehumanizing, and it invalidates your existence. How common of a problem do you think this is? I think it's an incredibly common problem because uh, in our schools nationwide, uh, very few teachers uh, writ large have moved from the Western canon to um, a more diverse array of literature offerings. It's just a really hard shift to make in part because our curriculum remains pretty traditional nationwide. Uh, It requires teachers perhaps to be reading out of their comfort zones and exploring new authors and new texts, and it involves getting parent and administrative support. You know, making that change is a Herculean effort for a lot of people. Money is a factor, too. To bring different kinds of books into the classroom, you have to be able to pay for those books. So I think a lot of teachers want to make this change, but they're maybe not sure how. But in the end of the day, uh, too many kids are still feeling like they're outside of the story of literature. Yeah. And before we get into like how we could make the change, what let's kind of draw the picture of the fact that it that it is a problem. I, mean, I saw one um, stat, I guess it was a survey of librarians, and um, they said it's very difficult to find books that portray characters with disabilities, um, native uh, people and uh, English language learners in books. So who else do you think is is getting left out in literature? Um, I think kids that live in poverty are often left out. It's becoming more common to find protagonists that are young people of color, but um, young people of color uh, aren't the only marginalized group in the country. Um, Kids who are poor, um, who don't experience sort of suburban privilege, um, middle-class comfort, like those stories need to be told too. And those, those kids aren't only living in the inner city. So that's the first category that would come to mind. What did you say? You said students with disabilities, English language learners, Native American students. Definitely those are also um, much harder populations to find stories about. So I think we're hitting on a lot of the major ones. Do do you think that the books don't exist or they just don't find their way into the classroom? I think the problem is actually connected to both of those issues. There aren't enough books that depict the experience of, you know, diverse human beings. Um, but even as those books are becoming more common, it's not always easy for them to find their audience. That that is a, you know, that's connected to 
the marketing departments of publishing houses, the amount of advertising budget that's devoted to those books and um, the willingness of bookstores and librarians to stock them. So there are all kinds of connecting issues here that play a part in, you know, books becoming visible and stories of this kind becoming visible. I didn't say this at the top of the show, but you've taught high school as well. Do you think teachers are cognizant that this is an issue? Are they aware that, you know, they have children in their class that really don't have books that reflect them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of teachers want to be more responsive to their students, but they maybe just don't have the resources or don't know how to begin the process of turning the tide in their classroom, you know, turning the tide in terms of the curriculum that they're able to deliver. So um, anytime you're a teacher and you see kids in the back with their heads down or kids who are fake reading, which is a term that I learned from Penny Kittle, who's a national leader in English education, you know, it's pretty demoralizing and heartbreaking as a teacher because you know you're failing in those moments. But figuring out how to stop failing can still be hard. What do you do with the kid that's fake reading in the back of the classroom? I think you talk to them. I think you um, ask them what's getting in the way of them connecting with the story. I think you then also do a lot of soul searching on your own part. Like, what am I offering? What am I not offering? Where, you know, who are the voices that aren't being represented here? Where are the silences in this curriculum or in this classroom? Um, And, you know, Kids are smart. And if you ask kids what's not working or what would make a difference, they can tell you and they can give you a lot of insight. But those can be intimidating conversations because you're vulnerable in those moments when you're asking kids to talk with you about what's not working. But I think you have to let yourself be vulnerable if you really want to become a more you know, powerful and effective presence in the classroom and in their lives. And you you kind of answered this question I'm about to ask you, but it's slightly different. Should a teacher be overt with their class about the challenge that they're having to put these books that are more diverse in their classroom? Should they should they have an open discussion about that? I think they absolutely should, because I think um, most all of us human beings appreciate honesty. And if you're willing to be honest with the kids about your awareness of the problem, and your desire to serve them better and affirm them more. And then if you follow up that confession with uh, asking them for advice, they may know books that you as the adult don't know. Uh, They may know other popular culture media forms that you don't know that could somehow in a roundabout way connect back to books. So kids can be amazing resources if we allow them to be. If you're a teacher, what are the obstacles in the way of of bringing a more diverse collection of books to the classroom. So I touched on that a little bit earlier because I've I've lived these obstacles myself, and I um, and I often when I'm able to talk to teachers, I'm often aware of um, what I said before their desire to make a change, but the sort of uncertainty about how to proceed. Um, so here's a list of the obstacles. One is inertia and tradition. If you work in a system where the same books have been taught for years, if not decades, it's really hard to make the case that there's a problem with that because it may not be that those books in themselves are bad, but it's just that they can't 
meet every reader's needs. They can't do all the work that literature should be able to do in the lives of kids. And can I, can I stop you right there for a second? Can you sure. give me an example of a book that like everybody is reading in high school that meets that criteria of where it's just stale and no one's really relating to it, but you still just kind of have to, to push through it? Well, I'll name the book and this will, you know, it'll elicit different reactions for different people. And it may not be that the book is stale, but I'm thinking of To Kill a Mockingbird. That is one of the most commonly taught books in the secondary curriculum. It's a book that a lot of America continues to be in love with. I mean, it's a beautiful story about some really um, uh, affectionate, compelling characters, you know, a little girl, Scout, and her dad, and the the neighbor down the street, Boo Radley, um, Calpurnia, the housekeeper, Tom Robinson, who who's a victim in the story, you know, and Atticus is a hero. Atticus stands up against his town, and he defends uh, Tom Robinson, and that's not a popular choice. But at the end of the day, that book represents white America's vision of racial progress and and justice. And it's a really different thing to get a story that tells um, or asks questions about racial justice that are not, that's not coming from the white perspective. Um, Atticus is a white savior figure. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that that kind of story makes a lot of teachers feel really good. Um, because the majority of teachers are white, but um, it's an old story. I mean, that book was published in the 60s. There have been so many books published since then that are more contemporary, more relevant, um, more cutting edge. And so why not teach To Kill a Mockingbird alongside a lot of other more current books? It's a great idea, but teachers may then wonder, well, which books and how do I get the money to pay for those books? And what if these books are controversial? Am I going to get blowback in the form of censorship or book challenges? So this is the kind of cascading set of doubts or worries that can get in the way of change. Do you have any tips for teachers on navigating two things? One, uh, you kind of talked about like the trouble of introducing new books to the school, getting that past the administration and the parents. And then two, how do you just financially get new books? Mm -hmm. So I think two things come to mind in terms of introducing the problem to administrators or the, uh, the idea of changing up the curriculum. You know, you need to know the books really well that you're interested in championing. Um, you have to have your own argument that is appropriate to your own educational context for what change is needed and why. And this, too, can be a really heavy lift because it's a lot easier to um, read someone else who in, is in education who inspires you and try to use their vision or their argument to make the case for your own setting. And it certainly helps to have those models. Um, but at the end of the day, as an individual teacher, I need to know what's right for my kids in my school building, in my community, and I need to have done the homework to have gone out and explored newer literature and sort of had both an intellectual and a kind of gut check on whether these books seem like they would be a good fit for my students. So those are the kinds of things that I would suggest teachers think through or start working on um, as they imagine going to their administrator or their curriculum chair and 
and talking about these things and making requests for change. Um, you know, just bringing to the attention of the administrator or the curriculum chair, like I have a lot of kids who are checked out in my class and I want to do something about it. Can we think together about what might be appropriate next steps? Like that might be another way forward. But you asked me the second part, which is about money. Um, you know, that's that's always going to be a sticking point. But a couple of things come to mind on the, the sort of lowest level. When I was a classroom teacher, we had vending machines in the school building and um, in the state of Michigan, every um, aluminum can or plastic bottle had a 10 cent deposit attached to it. And mm. that's still true. So when kids threw their um, empties in the recycling box, I made a point of saving those and taking them to the grocery store and getting the cash back and using that as a book fund. I mean, that's, that, that's so silly and it only comes up to 20 or $30, you know, every month or so, but that's still 20 or $30. Um, on a much broader and sort of national, more visionary level, I mentioned the name Penny Kittle earlier. She is a former high school teacher in New Hampshire. She's now working with college students, but she's written a number of books that have been, um, highly influential in in the field of English education. One of them is titled Book Love. And Book Love was about the problem of kids' fake reading in high school. And it was an argument for offering choice and more contemporary literature in the high school. It's a wonderful book. And Penny Kittle established a foundation called the Book Love Foundation that awards, I think, about 10 grants per year to teachers around the country who apply for them. And those grants consist of several thousand dollars to assist teachers in building diverse contemporary classroom libraries. So that's kind of one extreme to the other. Right. And there's a lot of um, other examples in the middle, but there are, there are possibilities out there, but you have to kind of develop an entrepreneurial spirit. Of course, it doesn't hurt to get your administrator on your side who can sort of set aside actual budget funds to support you. But if you have to do it on your own, those are a couple of ways. You said um, something contemporary literature. Um, you actually, I mentioned, wrote a, a book called Teaching Reading with YA Literature, Young Adult Literature. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about your passion with young adult literature? Is, is it getting the respect that it deserves in the classroom? Um, the, I mean, the answer is yes and no. And I always hesitate if I make a blanket statement like I made at the start of the show about nationwide what teachers are or aren't doing. There's all kinds of nuance in these in these sweeping statements that I'm making. But but with regard to young adult literature, I teach a college class now on young adult literature, which um, fills to the to the max every fall and uh, has a waiting list every fall. So that's just an incredible privilege that I get to do that. Right. But um I taught young adult literature in high school as well. And I can tell you that I continue to say to my students here at St. Louis University every fall, you have to be ready to make the case for young adult literature pretty much no matter what setting you're in. I have to make the case for these books at the university. Um, high school and middle school teachers have to make the case for these books in their settings. And it's um, there's a lot of reasons for that. But um, let me tell you, for every critique of young adult literature, I can come back and give you an argument about the beauty of these books, the artistry, the sophistication and complexity of them and their relevance in the world. But, you know, there's two things working against us, I guess, with young adult literature. Um, one is that people don't know what the books contain. 
they think of the books as um, all being kind of manifestations of Sweet Valley High or the Babysitter's Club, which are 1980s series. Or they think that young adult literature is nothing more than like Twilight or Harry Potter, which, you know, all of these books have value to somebody. But there's a lot more to the field than those easy kind of identifiable titles. But the other part that I think makes young adult literature always have um, sort of a burden attached to it is books about teenagers, you know, speak to the experience of teenagers in the world. And teenagers are a population that struggle to earn respect from adults and the society at large. I think a lot of people have ambivalence about their own adolescence. You know, they remember the pain and the embarrassment of being a teenager, the the struggles that teenagers go through. Um, and so going back to that can be really hard for people. And, you know, it's just easy to say that teenagers are um, hormonal, impulsive, not deep thinkers. Well, none of that stuff is actually true. Teenagers are as complex as are the books about them. But People sort of need to be pushed, I guess, to believe it. And if you don't have a teenager in your own life, it's easy to think poorly of teenagers. Mm. Teenagers can be scary. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes to be broken down here, both about the kids and about the books. Let me, I'm curious, and I want want you to challenge um, myself and our listeners. You mentioned there's some YA books that are complex. Can you give me one title of a, of a YA book that's, that meets all the criteria of complex literature and could compete with just about any other book you put in the classroom. It's always hard. It's like choosing your favorite child. Right, but let, right. me tell, let me tell you about a book that I've taught 10, 10 times now at the university. It's, there's one novel that I've taught every year I've been a college professor. The book is titled, We Were Here, the author's name is Matt De La Pena. This book concerns the experience of three kids who meet because they're all assigned to live in a group home. They're all caught up in the juvenile justice system. So these three main characters have all done something wrong that's caused them to run afoul of the law. And they're all now living in a group home instead of in straight up juvie. So the main character's name is Miguel, there's a character named Mong, and there's a character named Rondell. Um, So one kid is African-American, one's Asian, and one is um, biracial Mm -hmm. with Mexican heritage. So these kids meet, they don't like each other, um, they don't like where they are, they don't like who they are, but for a variety of reasons, they make a plan that they're going to run away from the group home, they're in California, and they're going to journey down to Mexico with the hope of starting a new life. And on the way, you know, it's a journey story. Um, you know, it, you know, in the same way that the Odyssey by Homer is a journey story. Um, they're going to find out a lot of things about themselves and the world and how they're viewed by the world. They're going to find out a lot of things about each other. Um, and they're going to reckon with their identities, um, being labeled a group home kid and what that means for your sense of self and your, your fate in life. And once you have that label put on you, can you be anything more than a group home kid? Um, meanwhile, the, the main character who's Miguel, oddly enough, before they leave the group home, 
he steals a bunch of books from the group home library and they happen to be works of classic literature. Hmm. One of, one of them is the color purple. One of them is the catcher in the rye. One of them is of mice and men. And so this group home kid who could easily just be kind of put in a box as a stereotype, he's reading these, these classic works and he's, he's thinking about the experience of the characters in these books and he's connecting their experience to his own. So it's a novel that's written in vernacular um, there's a lot of slang. There's profanity in the book. Um, these are kids that are not uh, traditional heroes, but boy, are they heroic, dignified, complex, amazing human beings. And the fact that we get to hear their voices, their authentic voices, not a cleaned up standard English version of their voices. It's a way to get to know their humanity. So that's that's the book that always comes to mind first, because it's one that touched me the first time I've read it, and it continues to resonate with students every fall in my class. Uh, I'm sold. I I really appreciate the recommendation, and I'm sure that those listening do as well. And I've never even heard that title, so I'll definitely have to check it out. Um, That's great. Should a teacher play matchmaker with books? Is it appropriate for a teacher to say, you know, you'll see yourself in this book? Or should they just kind of put the books out there and let students find that on on their own? I think both things should happen. So my answer is yes, teachers absolutely should play matchmaker and the teacher should be the one doing that because even though librarians are also exceptionally skilled matchmakers, teachers know readers. They're just able to know teen readers in a deeper way often than a librarian just because of um, more frequent contact. Not to say that a librarian can't develop a deep relationship with a teenager, but if you're an English teacher, you're seeing kids every day. And so you're getting to know those kids. And if you are also knowledgeable about the newest books that can speak to these kids, who better than to play the part of matchmaker than you? Um, But secondly, you can't know everything about every kid and you can't know what in a story is going to resonate with an individual kid. So I learned from another leading English educator. Her name is Donalyn Miller. Mm -hmm. She wrote a book called The Book Whisperer. Um, Donalyn talks about putting stacks of books in front of kids or organizing books into bins where the science fiction books are in a bin and contemporary fiction is in a bin and romance is in a bin, but also just stacks. Because um, if you put a stack in front of a, a student or a group of students, they themselves can have greater ownership and agency if they're able to sift through the stack and then make the decision. But there's still matchmaking work that's happened because somebody had to build that stack to begin with. Jennifer Bueller, we appreciate your time. Um, if you uh, don't mind, do you can you share maybe a way somebody can catch up with you? You seem pretty active on Twitter. Do you mind sharing your, your handle there? Yeah, I'm more of a listener than a speaker on Twitter. Yeah, you, but I you retweet a lot, lot. I see. Yeah. I retweet a lot. I really enjoy and um, benefit from the community that I find on Twitter. So yeah, my Twitter handle is at Prof Bueller. So it's Professor P-R-O-F. And then my last name, Bueller, B as in boy, U-E-H-L-E-R. That's the best way to get in touch with me. Well, Professor Bueller, are you ready for our pop quiz? I'll give it a shot. Yeah. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? I have to say English. It's a place where you can express yourself and you can find inspiration in how other people express themselves. So English. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Um, 
the way that school can provide a lens for reading the world. I think every discipline should be um, asking itself, how can the content that I'm teaching help kids understand the world about them more deeply? What does every child deserve? Respect. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Respect. What's the best gift to give an educator? Um, support and empathy. Uh, the work of educating kids is really hard, and it's really complex. And I think most teachers are doing the best they can. They just don't always know what they don't know, or they don't have time to fix the things that need to be fixed. So a little compassion goes a long way. Which teacher changed your life? A lot of teachers changed my life. Um, but the one that comes to mind first was my sixth grade science teacher. His name was Bill Beasy. Um, he uh, loved us as human beings and told us that he was um, putting aside the textbook and the work that we were going to do every day was going to be hands-on. And, um, and that was true. And, and he loved us as kids and um, made our learning fun and meaningful and challenging. And last question, pen or pencil? Pen. All right, Jennifer Bueller, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this very important subject. Uh, again, uh, again, the book is Teaching Reading with YA Literature, Complex Texts and Complex Lives, if anyone wants to check that out. And uh, you can also find uh, Professor Bueller on Twitter at Prof Bueller. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.